Well, good morning. And this this morning, um, this Sunday, is the first Sunday after Epiphany, which we celebrated last week. And traditionally, we look at the baptism of Jesus. So we're going to look at Luke's account uh, of the baptism of Jesus. And it's in uh, Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let us pray. Dear Lord, just pray that uh, this sermon, this message, the words that are shared, be of you and be used for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here Luke gives us a very brief account of the, the baptism of Jesus. I mean, it's just two verses. Um, and it really just says, you know, everybody was baptized, and then after Jesus was baptized, was praying, the Holy Spirit descended on him. But this simple account, I want us to, again, as always, read it in, in the context. And we're going to look at this passage a little, a little differently maybe this year. But in its context and what's going on here, to realize right before this is where the people are, are wondering, is John the Baptist the Messiah? Is he the one that's, that's come? And John the Baptist says, no, he's not even going to be fit to untie the sandals of the Messiah. He says, there's one coming who I'm not going to be fit to untie sandals. And he will baptize with spirit and fire. Because John has said all, all he can do is baptize with water. Basically, if you read it, and we looked at it at the beginning of Advent, we looked at that uh, account, that John the Baptist basically says, all I can do is baptize you with water and tell you to try harder. But there's one who is coming who's going to baptize you with fire and the Spirit. And the fire representing God's transforming and, and purifying presence in our lives to burn off what doesn't need to be there, to, to change, to to cleanse, to purify. That's images of fire. And the spirit that's gentle. It's gentle like a dove. That here we get the gentleness of the spirit that comes on Jesus. Well, Jesus will be the one to baptize us with the gentleness of the spirit. And it's Luke that goes on to write the book of Acts that you see it really should be Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's just how the Holy Spirit just pours out and what happens in the early church. So as we think about the baptism of Jesus, I want us to also think about our own baptism and our own following Jesus, our own allowing Jesus to be the one to baptize us. As, it, as Luke says here, as John the Baptist says, is the one who will baptize us with the fire and the spirit. And it means to trans, be transforming us, changing us. And if you keep reading right after this, right after this account of the baptism, you get the genealogy of Jesus. And, and I don't think it's there to, you know, wonder where it's different than Matthew's genealogy or is one, you know, Matthew come from one of the parents and uh, Joseph here, it's from Joseph, you know, you get Mary's and you get Joseph's. Or The point is the genealogy is traced all the way back to Adam. Is every generation listed? No. 
The point is it's traced all the way back to Adam, and it says Adam, son of God, and talks about Jesus being the son of God. That's the, that's the last statement in that genealogy is Adam, son of God. And it begins with what we read this morning. God saying, the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then right then it dives into the genealogy, going back to Adam who is Son of God. Now, we may just read over that and go down the road, but I think there's an important idea here. And especially when you look at, you know, a, a lot of scholars and theologians, and I, I also agree, that the writer of Luke's gospel most likely traveled with Paul, um, actually in Paul chapter and in Acts chapter 16, it goes, in Paul's journeys, it goes from saying, you know, third person, they went here, they went there, to we. They feel that's when the writer joins, and that's why it gets attributed to Luke, and the long story there. But he was connected to Paul. And you see in, in Paul's idea, what, some of what he writes in multiple letters, and especially brings out in, in letters like Romans, this idea of, of Jesus being the second Adam, being connected to Adam. Well, if you, if you have that idea, and, Paul, and, and Luke here is saying, you know, Jesus is the son of God, and then the genealogy to Adam, Adam, son of God, and you go back and you read Genesis. You know, Adam and Eve made in God's image, and they're to re reflect and multiply that image around the world. That's what they're told, first commandment, multiply that image that they're made in. And you get an important biblical concept of sonship, of this idea that the son, the daughter, the ch children, children of God, children of anybody, resemble the parents. You know, good, bad, or otherwise, we have a tendency to resemble our parents. There's, there's times in my life with my, with my kids or out in public or doing something else, there's, I'll say things and think, oh my goodness, that's, that sounds just like my dad. There's other moments that I'll even say things like, wow, that sounds like my grandfather. Um, that we have a tendency to, to, to take on some characteristics that we get from our parents. But also, my kids are, you know, the genes from me and my wife. Now, they're kind of mixed up and they're their own person, but they have characteristics and traits from each one of us. This idea of the offspring resemble the parent. You see that in Genesis, Adam and Eve made in God's image. But then an interesting thing, in chapter 3 of Genesis, there's the fall. There's sin entering the world, and we've looked at that, I think, back in the summer. But sin entering the world, changing everything. And then you get the story of Cain and Abel. But then you get the genealogy of Adam. And it's interesting how in that genealogy, it's not the son of God sharing this image of the son of God, God's image to the next generation, because I think of the fall. The future generations are called sons, not of God, but sons of Adam. And that's a theological idea that's picked up by you know, Paul and brought out in the second Adam idea. But you also see it in, you know, C.S. Lewis and what he writes of talking about sons of Adam. But I want us to understand 
how this is written is Luke wanting us to know that it is Jesus who restores the sonship of God to us. That he is the son of God whom the Father is well pleased. And he's the one that's going to bring out that image in us. He's the one that can baptize us with fire and the spirit and transform us. And then you see the rest of his ministry is living into that vocation. It's accomplishing that. This idea of this moment is it's not because Jesus needed to be forgiven of his sins or cleansed, or, but he is claimed and named and washed over as righteous in this statement from heaven. He is righteous. He is the one that's going to have the ability to baptize people, not just water, but fire and the Spirit, God's presence and the Spirit of God that comes gentle like a dove. And then you see that happen through the rest of Luke's gospel. And it goes on into the book of Acts. And you see how God works. And part of why I want us to, to look at it this way and to see it is that you see it there in the text. But also, you hear it here at St. Luke's. We're, we're beginning a multi-week kind of study and happening in Sunday school and uh, around the, the book. Um, disciple like Jesus, which is just kind of clarifying and thinking through what it means to be a disciple, what it means to make a disciple, what does a disciple look like, thinking about discipleship. And this first week, I, I couldn't, I thought about changing to a different text or preaching on something else, but this baptism of Jesus just sets the tone of what discipleship looks like. That it is this becoming and reflecting through the power of God's presence, through the, the, the transforming fire of God's presence in our lives and the gentle prompting of the Spirit bringing out in us what God wants to bring out in us, to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple. And the interesting thing, and the thing that why we need to, to remind ourselves of that is, you know, the term disciple or discipleship it kind of has, has shifted in our culture and world, and it's not you know, a new thing, that more to mean the idea, you know, we think discipleship. We have a tendency as the church to think about, you know, Christian education. It is more along the idea of, of information, of learning scripture, reading and understanding more about God and understanding theology or some theological construct or idea. That, that learning information, you know, coming to, to a event, coming to be part of Sunday morning worship. And those are all important things. And yes, it starts with information. You can't be a disciple, a learner, a follower of Jesus without learning from him. But that's not the fullness of what that concept means biblically. The idea of, of disciple in the ancient world, and you see John the Baptist had disciples, and Jesus has disciples, but other people had disciples. There were other philosophers that had disciples. You had other rabbis who had disciples. And what it means to, to look at someone and become their disciple is that you want to, to learn to, to see the world as they see, to understand how they think, to, to begin to do what they do, to, to do what they ask you to do, to go where they go. 
this idea of surrendering everything and, and following and, and learning, not just for the point of information, but it's this idea for transformation, of changing, of growing, of developing, of becoming and looking more like them, which is the goal. It's, it's the target of being transformed. That, you know, discipleship and being a disciple is brought out in the book. That is, you know, it's not about information. It's about transformation. It's not about concepts that we agree with, but it is about what you are becoming. And sometimes we don't think about it that way. But that's nothing new, as I said. You know, terms always kind of shift in, in how we view them and think about them. I was thinking about my own denomination, I'm a Methodist. And that, that name, Methodist, it goes back to John Wesley, 1700s, started the Methodist kind of movement, and revival broke out. Part of this great revival. But part of the gift was could organize people, and, and they were seeking holiness. But early on in his years at, at university, group they would they would meet wanting to to grow in their holiness and they confess sin to each other and they would acknowledge how how god was working in their life and they want to step out and do acts of of charity and and care for other people and what god wanted them to do and where was god leading them but holding each other accountable that it, it, it they met often and so outsiders began to look at them and call well that they're they're just really methodical in what they do in this methodical attempt to to live out this holiness of God. And so it was kind of a derogatory term used by outsiders, and they're Methodist. But it stuck. And now we're Methodist as a denomination. But it, sometimes people join the Methodist church thinking, well, you know, I, I agree with their theology, or I agree with what they, and that's a good thing, and I agree with the stance or how they operate on this, or um, maybe they like, you know, what you do in worship, and they decide, I want to become a Methodist, whatever. But really, it's not about those things originally, and what birthed the movement. It is about wanting to join with another group of people who are becoming something, who are on a journey together, and yes, there's process to it. So we see that in our own denominational idea, and it's true of other denominations. And it gets tweaked and become more about information. But it even goes back earlier than that. You can see in Scripture, even the term Christian itself. What is said, you know, now you, know, you think about, am I a Christian? Well, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I mean, I go to church, or I may not do this, or I, I, I do go to church, or I go to this church, or uh, I believe this information, I believe in, in Jesus, I'm a Christian, and it's almost like joining up with a club or agreeing with an idea or being a member of a church. or We can make it a lot of different things. But biblically, what it says in Acts is the first place that the term Christian was used was at Antioch. And a church kind of, you know, diverse leaders broke out and God was showing up. And that is where disciples, what it says in the text is disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. 
But the interesting thing is, it was not a term used by insiders, it was used by outsiders. And that actually up to that point, the term disciple, which means this follower, this learner who is wanting to become more like the teacher, this giving everything over to, to seek to follow, was the dominant idea of being a disciple, or they were also referred to as people of the way, which has this whole idea of movement and being on a journey, supporting the idea of transformation, of being transformed. Well, that's how they saw themselves. And the, as we said, the gentleness of the Spirit, the prompting and the nudge of the Spirit, the transforming work of God in their lives and how they lived that out in the world. That's what had the church spread and birth and how they saw themselves. But at Antioch, people looked at this group of people who were followers of the way, who were disciples of this Jesus, and the outsiders called them Christians, which means little Christ. Now, you know, no one may care about that, but I think it is a complete and beautiful shift, but also a shift that kind of steps on my toes. The Christian wasn't, well, I, I agree with this idea and, and I'm going to join the club. I agree with a piece of information. I agree that Jesus came and lived and died. It all starts there. But it is this idea that, that no... I get to choose whether I follow Jesus. Am I a disciple of Jesus? Am I on the way? Am I on this journey of becoming and transformation? And sometimes it's small steps. Sometimes it's, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. But you celebrate the step that you made. All those things. But you're on this journey of transformation. Of becoming more like Jesus. Reflecting God's image in the world. And the world... The outsiders, everybody else gets to decide whether you are a Christian or not, or whether you're a little Christ, whether you look like Christ or not. It's not a title I can take on for myself. I just get to decide whether I'm surrendering and, and letting God help mold me into what, what God wants me to become. And everybody else can decide whether I'm a Christian or not. It's a different way of thinking about it. So I want us to think about this idea as we begin this journey of looking at discipleship and what it looks like. And we're going to look at all kinds of, of facets of it and how it looks, what, what ways, and there's pieces that are unique to you and and way God has, has created and shaped you to, to fulfill a certain role. But it is this idea of what God is bringing out in us, what is God making and forming and shaping in us. And you see that all through Scripture. I think of that image of the potter and the clay, you know, that you see in the Old Testament, in the prophets, and you see it in the New Testament. It is this idea of God molding and shaping and transforming us and how we are growing and becoming more like Christ every day. And it certainly is we begin a new year. We just began a new year. I, how this year... Maybe more like Christ than last year. And you really can't set out to do it. You just surrender to it, but you want. It takes the fire of God's presence. It takes the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But it also has an aspect of intentionality. But I want us to remember two things. 
really important things as we enter this journey and, and we clear we clarify discipleship is not just information it's transformation you, you that's key to scripture but I want us to remember also I have I've preached and said over and over remembering it all begins with God's grace God's grace goes first and you see that here in the baptism of Jesus before Jesus has done anything God the Father says this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased I am pleased with this I mean actually the only thing Jesus has done up to this point is he got lost from his parents because he didn't go back with them you know we looked at that a few weeks ago and stays in the temple that's really his only action up to this point that's recorded he hasn't begun his ministry he hasn't healed people and you get this claim and name of my beloved child in whom I am well pleased well that's true of us as well you see that in scripture God we have said it over and over God loves knows knows more about you than, about you than you do yourself loves us where we are who we are but then never leaves us there you see, at this point, Jesus being claimed and named and beloved, and God is pleased, the Father is pleased. Well, then the rest of his life is this living into that vocation. What does that mean? And it is about doing the will of the Father, following where God leads, this transforming, molding, shaping, reflecting more of the image of God, letting that be restored each step of the way and we're going to look at different aspects and different small steps and ones you can take and but I want us to understand that first it begins with God's grace and then letting God transform us but the key is God wants develop and build our faith we have said that over and over and over the point of scripture the point of the journey is to discover the faithfulness of God and let it increase our faith to where we we will step out and discover more of God's faithfulness and I was thinking about that idea and um, the, certainly this past week because I knew I was going to preach this sermon and there was a night I couldn't sleep and I stayed up uh, you know, probably too late, but I ended up watching it on Netflix, this kind of mini uh, documentary series about movies, but anyway, documentary about the making of the movie Elf. And I won't go, you know, you may hate the movie, you may like the movie, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good Christmas movie, funny. And, but in that, I had no idea that, you know, who the director was, but as I found out who the director was and saw the director interact with the actors in this making of it and, and what the director could bring out of the actors and, and the trust, because the director, when he read the screenplay, had a clear vision for the movie and, and saw who the actors could be and, and picked them and, and, and brought out of them what would fit the movie that I think was part of what made it you know, popular and a good movie. That's what was argued in the documentary some but the idea of this director actor relationship how important that is 
And I found it was an old article in U.S. I believe USA Today that talked about this director-actor relationship and how you know even a great actor can you know work with a director that they just don't connect with. Maybe the, the director doesn't understand the actor and what would get the performance out, or maybe the director it, they just don't connect. And then there are certain directors that just an actor connects with, and it can bring out a better you know just a better performance. And it talked about, you know, Catherine Hepburn. Most uh, critics believe Catherine Hepburn, if you know Catherine Hepburn, famous actress, you know, her best performances and best movies were when she worked with George uh, Cukor. I believe that's how you say it. Um, but what he could bring out in her, and those were her best movies, that when she worked with Stuart Miller, just the movies weren't as good. That's what critics say. Or John Wayne, his best movies, they felt the best movies that, that brought out more and that was just better movies, critics think, were when he was with John Ford. And, you know, John Huston didn't, the movies weren't as good. Or even Cary Grant that said that, you know, his best movies were with Howard Hawks. Or Howard, yeah, Howard Hawks. And he, those were his best movies. And then he had... One movie, which I actually really like the movie. I think it's funny. Arsenic and Old Lace, if you've seen it. But critics say it's, it's not a great performance of his. And actually, Cary Grant could not stand to watch his performance in that movie because he thought it was so bad. And some of it was the, the director. Now, it wasn't that it was a bad director, Frank Capra. But just didn't connect and didn't bring out the best. When the article went on to go on and talk about this relationship between a director and an actor and when it can bring out the best and, and, you know, the idea that what needs to be de developed and what happens is trust. I was thinking about that and thinking about directors and actors and how true that is of this relationship with God, this idea of discipleship and what God wants to bring out in us. And this whole target of Scripture is strengthening our faith so that there can be mutual trust. That as we begin this journey in looking at discipleship, it starts with the invitation of God and cultivating mutual trust. That knowing that God sees in you, what you sometimes don't see in ourselves, that God sees the value, your worth is willing for God to give everything to restore and to bring out that you can trust that. That God sees in you where you can play a vital and key part in what God wants to do in the kingdom. This idea of what God wants to bring out of your life, you can trust that. Because God trusts you. So you need to trust that what God wants to develop and how God wants to do it and the gentleness of the Spirit it comes from a trustworthy leader and master and Lord. And as we discover together what it means to be a disciple, may you know it is the invitation that God offers loving us where we are and where we are but wanting to bring us on a journey of transformation. And may we cultivate the mutual trust 
to trust God and what God wants to do in us because God already trusts that it's there and that God can bring it out and, and that we are made in God's image. So may we have that idea as we begin this journey of discipleship and what it may mean. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we praise you and thank you for how you love us. Lord, in this passage, this idea of Jesus being the one, and in the third person of the Trinity, the the part of the fullness of who you are sometimes is beyond our comprehension. But if we just think about it, it's written here. The one who was already fully your son, the one who can baptize us with his spirit and presence, the Holy Spirit that can bring out in us what it means to be a child of God. May we trust you and trust that transforming process. In Jesus' name we pray.